Good morning, friends. Let me invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 21 today. This is the sequel to Psalm 20 that we looked at last Sunday morning. And uh, this is David and the people praising the Lord for what they requested uh, throughout Psalm 21 uh, before this. So let me begin by reading through our passage uh, just now. Psalm 21, hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You've given him his heart's desire, you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies, your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. He will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of men. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. The word of God. And may he not only bless what we've just read, may he strengthen us as we understand it. Let's just pray again briefly. Uh, as uh, Bill prayed, Father, quicken us with your good spirit now. Uh, give us hearing ears and seeing eyes. Uh, quicken me as well as I proclaim your truth. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So is there anything, now please don't shout out an answer, is there anything that God can't do? Think carefully, is there anything that our God can't do? I mean, after all, when Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke 1, didn't he say, for nothing will be impossible with God? But uh, the Word tells us there are some things God can't do. Uh, Hebrews 6.18 tells us that God cannot lie. Uh, his word also says that he can't die. He's eternal and immortal, according to 1 Timothy 1.17. Uh, nor can the Lord condone sin. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Furthermore, God can't change. We see this in James 1.17, calls him the father of lights, with whom there is no variation or or shadow due to change. The Bible tells us, yes indeed, there are some things that God can't do. He cannot act in a way that's contrary to who He is, to His nature. And this is good news. So then what can God do? Anything in line with His nature. As Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Whatever he wills to do, uh, he can do it, 
and nothing in creation can restrict him. We refer to this as omnipotence. Omni being all and potent as power. Uh, some call this sovereign power. Uh, the Lord described it through the prophet Isaiah. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And Job put it like this. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Well, that's a pretty lofty thought. Uh, a glorious thing. What a glorious thing that our God can accomplish whatever he wills to do. But as Bill alluded to from Isaiah 40, sometimes we, we have a difficult time thinking about omnipotence or sovereign power, if you prefer, because it's so far beyond our personal experience. We can barely pull off anything. Uh, so the idea of someone being omnipotent is a bit overwhelming at times. Uh, one theologian said the being of God is characterized by a depth, a fullness, a variety, and a glory far beyond our comprehension. That too, I think, is a good thing. So how do we respond to a God like this? And how should we react to this glorious truth that God's power has no limits, that that no plan of his can be frustrated or thwarted, that he can do, uh, that he can carry out with infinite power everything he determines. That's what Psalm 21 shows us how to do, how to respond to his great might, how we think about the sovereign power of God, because in Psalm 21, we find three responses uh, to the sovereign power of God or, or to his great might. The first response we find in Psalm 21 is David's. Uh, we see David rejoice in God's great might. This is found in verses 1 through 7. Notice how he begins, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. Strength is the ability to do what's necessary. And with, uh, when we apply that to the Lord, he has strength in an infinite supply. Nothing can thwart his purpose. Uh, I want you to see here why David rejoices. Two things uh, we're going to talk about here in verses 1 through 7. First, we're going to see the reasons for his rejoicing. And then we'll see, secondly, the requirement or the prerequisite to rejoice like this. But let's look at these reasons. Why is he rejoicing? There are five reasons in the verses before us. The first is victory in battle. Uh, it's because the Lord has given him the victory that he prayed for in Psalm 20. Uh, the second half of verse 21 goes on to say, And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. We see the word salvation and perhaps automatically think it refers to our being saved from our sin which it does later. But as David uses this term, the immediate context uh, shows that he's talking about salvation from something else, likely his own death. This is, it could be translated deliverance. It could be translated victory. This is what he's uh, referring to most likely by this word. And in your victory, how greatly he exalts. 
And so one Old Testament scholar said it like this, the deliverance referred to here is nothing short of salvation, not salvation from sin, but salvation from certain death in the battle. And again, this is the very thing we heard him pray for in Psalm 20 right before this. Look who the victory belongs to. Notice in your Bible the pronoun before the word salvation or deliverance or victory. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. It is the Lord's victory. It does not mean that that David didn't do anything in battle. You know, sometimes we read phrases like this. Some have, at least in the past, and still do. We read phrases like, your salvation. Or we read phrases like, the battle belongs to the Lord. And we incorrectly conclude that believers should just remain completely passive, that we should let go and let God. But if you read through the Old Testament accounts of of battle uh, that are scattered through the Old Testament scriptures, you see the men like Moses and Joshua and Abraham and, and David, they were not passive at all, but, but they were very active. And so when we see phrases like your salvation or, or the battle belongs to the Lord, we understand it means that the final outcome is ultimately in God's hands, not ours. We're summoned in the word to engage the world and the flesh and the devil, but to do so completely depending on the power of of God's spirit living in us, the outcome of our conflict rests with him. And in this, David, it says, exalts. We don't use that word. Well, I haven't heard any of you use it recently. Um, I'm about to exult in some of Gloria's bread at uh, our lunch today. Uh, At least I, I hope to. That is the benefit of going through the line, standing there at the head, pretending like I'm letting everybody go before me, and uh, actually gives me an opportunity to get the bread at the end of the table before you get to it. (laughs) If you've not had glorious bread, you would exult in it. Now, I'm being a little facetious, not just a little, though it's really good bread. But you get the point. David is overjoyed that God's great might has delivered him from death. And so he, this is the first reason he's rejoicing because the Lord's given him victory in, in the battle that, that he was praying about. Secondly, we see him uh, rejoicing in, in the might of God for answered prayer. Uh, he answered the very things he prayed for in Psalm 20. Notice verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the, the request of his lips. And that phrase in your text, his heart's desire, uh, is a direct link to the psalm right before this. And last Sunday, up in Psalm 20, verse 4, we read this. Uh, May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. His heart's desire, we said, was that the Lord would fulfill his battle plan, that he would carry out his strategy and give it success. And according to uh, our passage today, God had done this. David was victorious. 
So he rejoices that God answered his very specific prayer for this strategy of his to succeed, to, to defeat the enemy. He gives thanks and he's rejoicing for increasing honor. Uh, David's fame and reputation grew among his people and the surrounding nations because of his victory. Look at verse 3. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. The phrase you meet him, some suggest that this refers to Israel coming out to meet him as he and the army return uh, to Jerusalem. As they return from battle and they're cheered and, and somewhat given something like a ticker tape parade as, as we often do in, in our day. And, and it says, uh, uh, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head that that likely is referring to the crown that the opposing king wore who had to surrender it to David after David had defeated him. Uh, no doubt met by shouts and cheers that the people were praying for in, back in Psalm 20. Uh, the, this increasing honor, he, he refers to it again in verse 5. David talking in the third person. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you, you bestow on him. Again, salvation here refers to victory in battle. Uh, and, and recall that this enemy was equipped with horses and chariots. Some trust in uh, chariots, some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We saw in verse 7. Uh, last Sunday, and, and Israel did not have those things. And so this, this victory is nothing short of miraculous. And David, David's fame increased through this. Listen to Dr. Steve Lawson. These military victories enhanced David's glory, splendor, and majesty as Israel's king. God had given him prominence. Then if you look at verse 6, this increasing fame extends down uh, there as well. For you make him most blessed forever. It's a complicated phrase in the original. Uh, it, it means uh, that David, the Lord made him a source of blessings for the nation of Israel. Through, uh, through him, the needs of God's people would be met. Uh, this is his increasing honor. And David rejoices that God has, has given him this privileged uh, position of increased honor. He rejoices in long life. Uh, the Lord has granted him this as well. We see this in verse 4. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Practically anyone about to enter battle would, would pray for the Lord to keep them alive. And the Lord graciously granted this very request to David. But, but note the end of verse 4. and It says length of days forever and ever. And referring to probably his royal dynasty and the covenant that the Lord had made with David in the book of 2 Samuel. This is far beyond what David had ever imagined and probably uh, refers to the promise in the Lord's covenant with him. Listen to what the Lord promised. 
in 2 Samuel. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And we all recognize that that was Solomon. But it goes on. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that can't refer to Solomon. Solomon did build the temple, Solomon's temple we call it. But this throne extending forever could not refer to anyone in David's royal line except for Jesus Christ. The Lord would extend David's royal line forever through great David's greater son as we refer to him. And that's the Lord Jesus. And so one scholar comments here, the New Testament has filled in the picture firmly with the figure of the ultimate king, the Messiah, for whom this whole stanza is true without exaggeration. So by the Lord's sovereign power, uh, he gave David long life, far longer than anything David could imagine. He preserved his life in battle and would extend his line all the way through Jesus Christ, and we recognize that will extend into eternity future. Finally, David is rejoicing in God's presence. If you can see that down there, let me duck for a minute so you can write it down. It says God's presence there, the fifth thing that he's rejoicing in, uh, knowing that the Lord went with him into battle. And look now in verse 6, and this is the toward the middle. It says, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. More literally, you make him glad in the company of your face. Uh, this emphasizes God's personal presence with David on the battlefield. This is a blessing you and I are prone to forget, isn't it? Well, I, I, I believe so. Because we so often enter conflict, spiritual conflict, with a, a sense of feeling alone. I think this is caused by... Um, our own forgetfulness to begin with. Uh, it's also caused by the deception of our enemy who seems to be constantly whispering in our ears, you're all alone. No one has ever been tempted like this before. You are the exception. Nobody's ever had a trial like this Nobody's ever struggled with this sin. There's his whispers, there's our forgetfulness, and then, then there's a, 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 we often, far too often, rely on our emotions instead of the concrete facts of Scripture. But David experiences great joy remembering that the Lord went with him into battle. Uh, what, what did he remember? Maybe David had in mind the promise that Moses gave to Joshua. Uh, as Joshua was about to step into his shoes, sandals, whatever, uh, Moses said, it is the Lord who goes before you. 
He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Maybe David had that in mind. Or perhaps David was thinking of the words the Lord himself repeated to Joshua. Very similar to to Moses' words. But after Moses died, the Lord said to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And David is not leaning into his emotions or or paying attention to the whisperings of his enemy, but rejoicing for joy that God went with him into battle. Boy, we need to do the same thing, do we not? We have far more to rely on than David ever did. As I mentioned last week, Isaiah 41.10, Hebrews 13.5 and 6, where the Lord repeatedly says, I will be with you. So these are the reasons for for his great joy, why he uses that word exalt, uh, delights, rejoices greatly for these five reasons. It's victory in battle and answered prayer and increasing honor and, and long life and the very presence of God accompanying him into battle. But... To experience this kind of joy, there is a requirement that must be met. You could say there's a prerequisite for joy like this. And this is what we see next. Uh, The requirement for, for this kind of rejoicing that we hear from David. And notice verse 17, uh, excuse me, verse 7 in your, your Bible. For and note the word for, reason, explanation, tells us the grounds for what's taken place before. For, for the king trusts in the Lord. That's the requirement behind his rejoicing, the grounds for his joy. And this word trust uh, means to rely on, to put confidence in a person. Uh, to believe in, and the tense of the word trust. The verb tense is is, uh, ongoing, continual. And so the king was continually relying on or continually putting his confidence in or kept on believing in the Lord. Friends, there comes a time when you and I must decide if the things we've been saying about God are true or not. And we have to decide if we truly believe the things our parents have been telling us, if our Sunday school teachers were telling us the truth, if our elders and pastors taught us what was really true, and then having decided, like David here, we must act. David believed that the Lord kept his word. 
David believed that the Lord would keep the covenant he had made with him. David believed that his steadfast love would never fail. David took God at his word and acted on it. He strapped on his sword and marched out to face his enemy. And I put it to you, if you and I want to rejoice in the great might of God and His sovereign power like David did here in these first seven verses, we too must take God at His word. We must believe that His word is reliable. As I mentioned at the beginning, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Or that verse, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then taking God at His word, friend, we must fight. We must take risks. We must attempt to do what God has summoned us to in His word. What happened to David because of his ongoing trust and this enduring dependence, this continual belief? Well, verse 7 goes on to say, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved or removed or dethroned or unseated from his kingdom or removed from power. He would stay on the throne of Israel because the Lord God, through His sovereign power and great might, kept Him on the throne because He trusted in His Word. So, the first response to see is from David. And David rejoices in God's great might. And he rejoices, we've seen these two things here. The reasons for his rejoicing, those five things we saw in our text. And and then second, the requirement for that rejoicing. The king trusts in the Lord. And I simply want to put it to you that this sovereign power God's great might, His omnipotence is meant to have the same effect on you and me. I want you to hear Dr. R.C. Sproul describe it and see if this comes anywhere close to your experience. He says, for the Christian, God's omnipotence is a great source of comfort. We know that the same power God displayed in creating uh, the universe is at His disposal to assure our salvation. He showed that power in the exodus from Egypt. He displayed His power over death and the resurrection of Christ. We know that no part of creation can frustrate His plans for the future. There are no maverick molecules loose in the universe that could possibly disrupt His plans. The powers and forces of the world threaten to undo. We have no fear. 
we can rest in the knowledge that nothing can withstand the power of God. He is the one who is almighty. That's a good spot for an amen. The king rejoices in the great might of God. And you and I can too. Well, this leads us to a second response. And in the second response contained in verses 8 through 12, we see the people's response. And the people are confident of God's great might. Because of David's victory accomplished by God's power, the people are confident of future victories that will also come by His great power. Uh, verses 1 through 7 are, are a past victory by David. And verses 8 through 12 now point to future, further victories, the ongoing success of the king. And we don't have to get very far into this section, verses 8 through 12, to realize that a lot of this cannot refer to David. If it, if it does refer to him, it's very uh, exaggerated. People are using hyperbole much more likely that this is looking past David to David's greater son, Jesus Christ. You'll hear things that only Christ can fulfill in verses 8 through 12. And so what we're reading about is the great might of Christ that he will put on display when he returns. And his sovereign power will accomplish three things. He will capture his enemies, our text says. Verse 8. Again, this is the people now speaking. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. And this perhaps could refer to David, uh, but it certainly refers to Christ. Uh, as well. Find out uh, here in our context means not only to uncover or to learn someone's location, it also means to catch them. It's not only that Christ will find out where his enemies have tried to hide themselves, he will find them and catch them at his return. Jonathan uses this word the same way uh, to describe his father trying to find and catch David. And, and notice how Christ finds and catches his enemies in verse 8. Your hand will find out. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. In, in the Old Testament, hand is almost universally a reference to power. Right hand, especially so. Sorry for you southpaws seated in the room today. Um, but you weaklings understand that the people... <laughs> it's just a joke. So for example, when the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt... Um, and Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea. The Israelites were singing this, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And later you stretched out your right hand. When, when Christ returns, Revelation 6 tells us that, that his enemies will attempt 
to run away and hide. It says the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Christ will find them and capture them. Not only will he capture his enemies, it goes on to say that he will consume his enemies. By his sovereign power, his enemies will be destroyed. Look at verse 9 in your Bible. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. This blazing oven is a reference uh, to an earthenware pot. It's, it was a kind of portable stove. And it was prepared for use by filling it with flammable material and then setting it on fire if you've used a Coleman stove when you've gone camping. Uh, this is something like that. And many of us have uh, set the whole Coleman stove on fire like they're talking about here. But the image it, it, it portrays is a picture of intense, consuming fire. And through this all-consuming fire, the Lord, the Lord will destroy his opposition and remove them from the face of the earth. Verse 9 says, You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. 2 Thessalonians refers to this same fire. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, second, when Christ returns by his great might, he will not only capture his enemies, he will consume his enemies. And then third, we see that he will confound his enemies. He will frustrate their plans that they had formed against him and against his people. And we see this in verse 11. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. These plans of the enemy, or these are the very things that Psalm 2 describes to us. Uh, where it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. And, and, and this explains why their plans fail. Verse 12, if you'll note in verse 12, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. One look at Christ at his return and his enemies will melt away in a panic. This was similar to the panic caused by the Confederate army in the Battle of Bull Run, which some of you know is the first battle of Manassas. And this account says on July 21st, 1861, 
raw Yankee recruits marched toward the Confederate Army camping at Bull Run, 30 miles southwest of Washington. The Union soldiers were overconfident and acted like they were headed toward a sporting event. Congressmen, ladies, and all sorts of spectators trailed along with lunch baskets to observe the fun, but the courage of the Confederates who stood their ground like a stone wall, giving their general his nickname Stonewall Jackson, and the arrival of reinforcements threw the Union forces into a panic, even though the Union had the larger army. One observer of this wrote, we called to them, tried to tell them there was no danger, called them to stop, implored them to stand. We called them cowards, denounced them in the most offensive terms, but all in vain. A cruel, crazy, mad, hopeless panic possessed them. And one glimpse of Christ in all his glory will set his enemies into a panic like this. A cruel, crazy, mad, hopeless panic. As the Lord looks on the plans that the wicked have made against Christ and his people, he responds in Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When Christ returns, he will confound his enemies, uh, completely frustrate their plans against him and against his people. And so the second response towards the sovereign might of God, the great might of God, comes from the people of God. And verses 8 through 12 show us that the people are confident of God's great might. Because of David's victory accomplished by God's great power, the people are confident of future victory by David. And, and David's great descendant in particular, the Messiah, Christ Jesus our Lord. This can be our response as well, that when Christ returns, his great might will right every wrong we have ever experienced, that his sovereign power will destroy his enemies and remove our opposition, that at his return, he will take us to our eternal home in heaven. The people of God are confident of his great might, and, and friend, you and I can be as well at the return of Jesus. One more part, one more response in our psalm. We've seen the king rejoice in the great might of God. And we've seen that the people are confident in the great might of God. In the third part of our psalm, we hear the people pray for God's great might. The people of God pray that the Lord would be honored further by putting his might on display for all to see. And we see this in verse 13. Look at what it says. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. Exalted refers to, to being lifted up, to uh, be given greater honor, to be given greater honor and fame, 
for his status to be elevated in people's eyes. Their heart's desire is for God to be glorified, for, for his fame to swell and increase, for his reputation to grow just as David's did previously. Their, their desire is for people to see the God of Israel for who He truly is. And, and He is the Almighty, the Omnipotent One. And they ask for this to, to take place through further displays of His strength. Through further victories of their King. And for these further displays and victories they vow to praise him as the end of verse 13 says we will sing and praise your power this is the third response is that they pray for a further display of God's might and and this is what we pray for as well every time we pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name or may your name be treated as holy. We're praying this very prayer that God would be seen as glorious, that his fame would increase in the world, that Christ would be magnified in the church, that his name would be lifted up and his payment for sin would be proclaimed and made great. They prayed for God's great might to be seen and we do too. So this lofty thought of the omnipotence of God that, that our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. How do we get our heads around that as we say sometimes that, that our God's power has no limit that nothing in creation can frustrate His plan and, and everything in creation is everything what else is there? There's God and then there's His creation. Nothing in creation can frustrate His plan. Uh, Job, I know no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He can carry out with infinite power, unlimited power, everything He determines to do. Well, there are three responses we see here to His great might. The king rejoices in it. Uh, the king lists his reasons for rejoicing and, and we see he rejoices because he was trusting in the Lord. And then we hear that the people are confident of God's great might, that it will continue to be shown in particular through the Messiah when he comes. And third, we see the people praying for his great might to be seen. Lord, may you be seen as glorious through the displays of your power and through your might. Let's pray as we conclude. God, we pray this too. We pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted up and exalted. And we pray, Father, that by your Spirit who indwells us, that your great Greatness would be seen through our lives and the transformation of our lives and the change that comes over when we turn to your son Jesus and trust in his payment for sin upon the cross. We ask that 
we would glorify you. That we would make your name great. That your church would reflect the glory and beauty of Jesus, your son. Father, please do this through us, we ask in his precious name. Amen.